0: It is April twenty second, two 2017, and this is a recording for the Conversation at Airsafe.com podcast. My guest for tonight is uh, Peter Paul from Toronto, Canada, who has the website MH370Latest.com, which has a variety of news items for the MH370 ongoing investigation, which at this point has been going on for over three years now. Before we go on, I want to give the audience a chance to find out a little bit about what you've been doing. You've had your website, mh370latest.com, up for a little over three years now?
1: Right. So we started actually, originally started actually last year really heavy on it. Uh, I was doing a lot of research before then, and I decided to actually start it up really uh, last year by contacting people like yourself and getting uh, opinions.
0: And a full disclosure, for the five or six people on planet Earth who haven't heard about uh, this event, MH370, as uh, many of you may recall, was a 777 airliner for Malaysian Airlines, which went missing in uh, March of 2014. And since then, it has not been found, or more specifically, there have been a couple of pieces that have been definitively identified as having been from the aircraft, which were pieces of debris which were floating on the Indian Ocean for some time. There have been several other pieces of the aircraft, that have been identified as being definitively definitively from a Triple Seven aircraft, very likely from M H three hundred seventy. But other than a few odd pieces of debris, the bulk of the aircraft hasn't been found, and the aircraft is presumed to be in an area of the Indian Ocean, roughly two thousand kilometers west of the west coast of Australia, in yeah. a uh, part of the Indian Ocean that hasn't been really investigated or examined scientifically or otherwise until this A search effort was put underway and the search effort although the formal part of it has been suspended there has been an ongoing search effort by a variety of organizations headed by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau also known as the ATSB which has been coordinating the search efforts of Malaysia which is the government that uh, uh, oversaw the airline Malaysian Airlines the Chinese government the Australian government and a variety of other players and uh, at this point,'d i like to give it over to to you peter and and give you a little bit of a chance to talk a little bit more about what you've been doing.
1: Well, again, thanks a lot for doing this Todd. i mean we've had we've talked to a couple people. Uh, we've spoke to a professor last year who was doing the drift analysis for the authorities, and uh, I think he actually did an update as well uh, recently which shows that it should uh, the, the debris I guess suspected debris would be around that area uh, off the west coast of Australia i think they now they've put it a little north of there uh from where the seventh ark is uh which is just off the coast of Australia on the west coast and uh yeah they've i mean they've also found debris now i believe on the east coast of Africa i mean it's pretty pretty interesting but we've talked to a lot of people and it's a very intriguing <laughs> investigation i mean it's it's just against everything else we've learned. I mean, I've followed aviation since I was a kid, and, you you know, you have an incident, you have the debris, there's an investigation, uh, you know, you have the black boxes, everything like that. Uh, This is really intriguing. It's kind of more like uh, hypothesizing, really, on base history.
0: There is one term you just mentioned I'd like to explain a little bit. You mentioned the 7th arc. Uh, Without going into great detail, and please uh, uh, break in if I'm incorrect here, there was a system on board the aircraft that had the airline uh, given the full, um, well, paid for the full service, there would have been a near constant, not a near constant, but a regular stream of data coming from the aircraft uh, back to the airline or back to a third party. This is similar to the system that had been installed on the A330 aircraft, for Air France, that crashed in the Atlantic Ocean in 2009. Uh, These engineering messages were broadcast continuously, and because of this message broadcast, the search authorities were able to narrow the search area for that A330. And although it was a, a very huge effort to search for it, they had a relatively small area to look in. Uh, unlike that system, the MH370 aircraft had a very basic system that once an hour sent out a very basic message saying basically the system is operational. And these were done uh, every hour. There was a final message. That was not at a one-hour interval. That happened after there was a uh, serious system change. I believe that when the engine started to flame out, there was a final message broadcast. Based on just a handful of signals from this aircraft, the Inmarsat company, which was the company that was receiving the signals, they did a fantastic job of using mathematical analysis to narrow the range where the search area would be for this aircraft. It went from a search area that would have encompassed most of the Indian Ocean, large parts of the Pacific Ocean, to an area that was much smaller, roughly the size of, I believe, the uh, U.S. state of Pennsylvania or the country of North Korea. And that's where the search area, search effort was concentrated in that what's the so-called seventh arc area. And again, the search effort went on for quite some time. and They were not able to find any part of the aircraft. Now, getting back to your drift model, the drift model that you mentioned from the professor whose name escapes me at the moment.
1: Professor Charitha Patriarachi. Patriarachi, excuse
0: me. That information was provided to, I believe, the Australian authorities. But it was not enough information for them to restart the search in a new area. Is that correct? Yes. And where it stands now, uh, there is no active search going on. There are no ships out there in the area searching for it. And the likelihood of the aircraft being found anytime soon is rather low. And, again, you've done uh, quite a bit of an effort recently to look into a lot of details about this. And one of which I found very interesting was the reports of a South African uh, professional cricket player uh, finding some debris on the coast of the Indian Ocean and it, it being sent in. This was last December. And I actually looked at the Australian ATSB website to see if there was anything about this. I saw no mention of any debris being analyzed. In fact, no mention of anything um, from December 2016 or later. So if you could, uh, to the best of your abilities, fill in some details. This would be very interesting for my audience as well. Uh, What what happened to that piece of debris? It's
1: interesting because I did actually, how I originally got, I was uh, South African cricketer, Albie Morkel. I contacted him on Facebook, and he was nice enough to give us permission to republish those photos. So what I did was I actually contacted ATSB as well uh, by email. I didn't get a reply, uh, but I did do the same thing you did. I'm still waiting. I go on their site. I try to look for something that resembles the pictures he gave us, but uh, up to this day, I haven't been able to confirm. But uh, I haven't seen anything about it as well since then.
0: So it was found off the east coast of off the coast of South Africa in December of last year, December 2016. Do you know if the piece was handed over to the requisite authorities, either the uh, South African or the Malaysian or the Australian authorities?
1: Yes. So in the report, uh, he did uh, confirm that he was in touch with ATSB and Malaysian authorities and that he did actually hand it over. Um, But that was actually never independently confirmed by me. Uh, Whether they received it, when they received it, no idea.
0: Okay, so for those of you who are in the audience who may want to follow up on this, please do. And again, there's a report at various media sources, including on the uh, MH370Latest.com site. And the South African who uh, was named, uh, let me get the name right, Albie Morkel, A-L-B-I-E-M-O-R-K-E-L. If anyone knows anything about uh, what happened to this de- debris piece or what analysis, if any, has been done by the Australian authorities, uh, Boeing, etc., uh, please let us know, either at mh370latest.com or here at airsafe.com.
1: Well, you know what's really interesting, Todd? That anytime I interview somebody who's actually a pilot or at least close enough to the plane, I, it's always really interesting to them. Uh, we interviewed, uh, if you probably didn't see it, Pierre Genuit. He's uh, a Canadian aviation legend. We interviewed him uh, in Feb- on February 12th, actually, 2017. He said to us that uh, he believes there's, because there's a deliberate interruption um, purportedly on this flight MH370, that it's, uh, it's kind of like uh, something done on purpose, that it really intrigued him why that power was just cut off so suddenly to the key equipment, uh, particularly the cars.
0: Uh, full disclosure, I used to be a Boeing safety engineer, and the most uh, significant project I worked on was the 777 development project in the early 1990s. And so I had quite a bit of experience working with the engineering teams that were designing the aircraft, understanding the kind of systems, both uh, flight control, safety systems, etc., that were on board the aircraft. And one of the things we did in the safety engineering department, we were constantly looking into incidents and accidents, both contemporary and historical, involve, involving both Boeing aircraft and other aircraft, trying to come to grips with how do you deal with a complex technological process like flying an aircraft and dealing with the kind of problems, either individual problems or cascading problems that may lead to the loss of an aircraft. So with that in mind, in the first few days after the the aircraft went missing, I came up with four general conceivable theories that would explain what happened given the very, very small amount of data that was available in the week or two after the event. And by the way, fundamentally, these four ideas haven't changed since then. Uh, The first being a traditional hijacking, that is some outside entity not connected with the airline, takes over the aircraft and, for whatever reason, flies it to the middle of the Indian Ocean. Uh, The second, an insider hijacking, that is someone with extensive knowledge of the aircraft, of aircraft procedures, of the security methods uh, and and, um, technologies available on the aircraft, might have overcome them, circumvented them, and taken over the aircraft. Now, an insider hijacking doesn't have to be the pilots. It could be someone else who's involved with the airline, someone who's very, very familiar with 777, or someone else with a uh, access to the aircraft or to the airport or to the secure areas of the airport that the average person wouldn't have. The third would be what I call a traditional complex accident. That is uh, either a series of problems, either simultaneous or sequential or some combination, where the aircraft systems were compromised to the point that the air, that the aircraft uh, pilots did everything in their power to keep the aircraft flying, using a combination of creativity and, and just um, decision-making in the heat of the moment to try and keep the airplane in the air, which yeah. would explain things such as No voice communication that was out of uh, abnormal happening to the ground. The aircraft changing direction several times in ways that weren't explained and definitely weren't part of the flight plan. And the fact that the aircraft was flying in the direction it was flying, which, as it turns out, is probably the most inaccessible part of the earth uh, where it was flying, directly to the middle of the Indian Ocean, nowhere near any landing strip, uh, nowhere near any uh, conceivable place where the aircraft could, could set down safely. And the fourth, which could be, in fact, all of these could be in combination. The fourth being, at some point, the people flying the airplane were either unwilling or unable to change the course, altitude, direction, etc., of the aircraft. And once it was cruising at level flight altitude and constant airspeed, it kept going in that direction and airspeed until the fuel ran out. Now, whether or not... One or more of those four scenarios took place, or whether or not there was a scenario that doesn't involve any of those four, that's unknown even now. Because other than a small bunch of uh, uh, relatively small pieces of debris, I believe the largest one was about two meters long, uh, no part of the aircraft has been found. No other information from the aircraft has been received. uh, No broadcast radio signals, no... Uh, electronic devices recovered from the ocean floor with data on it, nothing. The black boxes, if they're still intact, are certainly not uh, in the hands of the authorities. They're very likely with the rest of the the debris of the aircraft. Now, one thing I will say, given the condition of those pieces of the aircraft that have been recovered, especially the two pieces of flaperons, which are trailing edge devices in the wings, that have been definitively identified as being from MH370. It's uh, pretty apparent to me that the aircraft did not um, land in the water intact. That is, it was very likely an uncontrolled impact with the water. In fact, uh, at least one of the pieces which are confirmed to be from uh, 777, but not necessarily from MH370, very likely from MH370, was an interior cabin uh, piece of debris, which is consistent with That part of the aircraft going through some fairly intense uh, physical stresses at some point. Again, consistent with a high-speed, uncontrolled entry into the water as opposed to a controlled ditching. So I would hazard a guess that the end of the flight was uh, not a stable, controlled um, flight of the aircraft. Right. Right.
1: That's very interesting. It's one of the things we actually run into a lot as well, that they believe that it even, I think there was a report, I don't have it with me, but uh, I believe there was a report by uh, an, official, uh, an official, I think it was ATSB, don't quote me, um, that said that uh, this plane most likely uh, broke up prior to it hitting the water. Um, so that most of the people that we've interviewed also believe that as well.
0: Well, let me go further and say uh, it was not a controlled impact with the water. The aircraft may or may not have been intact at the point that it hit the water. That's unclear. It could have been a situation where it was in a very, very high-speed dive, and you would have pieces of the aircraft being torn off uh, before it hit the water. Or it could have broken up fairly severely in midair, uh, much like the MH317 777 did several months later, which, by the way, MH-17 was shot down by a missile. No evidence whatsoever that this happened to MH-370. I'm just pointing out that that was one of those cases where the aircraft broke apart at high altitude and you had a wide dispersal of debris over a wide area. It's unclear if that happened with MH-370 because, again, there has been no debris field found on the bottom of the ocean. And unless and until that happens, it's hard to say whether or not this was a relatively intact debris field. Much like what happened in two thousand nine with the Air France flight, or whether this was a more scattered debris field like MH three seventeen excuse me MH seventeen. Right.
1: So, Todd, I want to get to something else here. It's uh, I want to ask you how has this, if it has, you know, we haven't had a lot of information like debris or anything with the investigation. Uh, is there a chance for this to either change aviation or change people's thoughts? Because we that's the one thing we've come across as well. People are changing. Uh, we just did a report about how uh, laws in Europe are getting changed, uh, not so much in North America, but there is a slight move now towards you know, tr- getting more data for the planes, tracking them uh, more sufficiently. Uh, what's your take on that?
0: Well, this sort of uh, folds into your first question that you sent to me by email. What intrigued you most about MH370? I think the most intriguing thing now is that because of the nature of what happened here, the kinds of questions that usually get spoken of over long periods of time by policymakers in the aviation field were put front and center almost immediately. Questions like, how can it be possible that an aircraft in this modern age with GPS tracking, etc., could go missing? Or that you wouldn't know where every airliner is at every minute of flight? Well, that speaks to a couple of things. One, there's a technology or several technologies that could certainly track the aircraft in real time. Two, and this gets to the international, the essential international nature of aviation, unless this is regulated and required by international agreement, it doesn't happen. Things such as, for example, something as simple as safety slides. Well, there's a way that safety slides are supposed to perform. There is a way that they should be designed. And once the authorities in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere settle on requirements and minimum requirements, that's how things are manufactured. It's same, the same goes for procedures. Uh, the lighting systems you see at airports around the world are standard around the world for a reason. And once there was a decision made on how do you navigate visually, how do you navigate electronically, over time regulations get put out there, and although they don't have the force of law, it goes something like this. The biggest players in aviation are North America and Western Europe. We're talking U.S., Canada, Britain, France, Germany, uh, Great Britain, uh, Great Britain, Germany, France, and uh, Spain, etc. the European Union countries. If they agree on something, regulatory-wise, it basically gets adopted around the world. Right. Now, will there be changes in people's minds about how to track airplanes? Certainly. That happened within days. Will there be a movement out there to regulate this in North America, Western Europe, and eventually around the world? I don't see anything happening yet. Because although it's a common sense thing, a lot of air, air, airlines will do it unless there is a set of regulations out there that say either you put this in place or we won't allow you to fly into our country. Unless that change happens, I don't see this becoming a universal thing.
1: Right, right. I mean, there was just a couple of days ago we're working on another report too, where Malaysia Airlines just became the first airline to install uh, technology that'll give them a little bit better data than what they had. Um, Well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I guess, I'm hoping, I guess, airlines will most likely follow, as you said.
0: And Ah! having an airline, any airline, put this into play and actually use it over time is one of those key events where there's suddenly going to be data out there. There will be suddenly an airline or several airlines that have had long experience doing this, and that will likely inform any regulatory changes that happen. Uh, Without going into great detail, things happen at a glacial pace in aviation because, even if you have a brand-new technology that seems to be absolutely perfect for dealing with a particular situation, it has to meet a long-standing set of requirements, technological and regulatory, before it, it passes muster and gets put as standard equipment on aircraft. And even if tomorrow the World Airline Authority said, you know what, the, the Civil Aviation Authorities, like the FA said, you know what, we're going to have technology X on the airplanes. Right. Well, now you have a question. How do you add technology X? Do you say we ground the entire fleet, retrofit everything before they fly again? Do you say we will do so no later than a particular date, giving the airlines a few months or a couple of years to put things into place, sort of like what happened with armored cockpit doors in the wake of 9-11? Or do you have a more uh, sedate sort of pace of change, saying any newly designed aircraft from now on must have this incorporated? Or somewhat more aggressive, currently produced aircraft that are new after a certain date, must have it installed. Right, right. So there's a whole range of speeds as to how something could become an evolutionary change in aviation.
1: Right. And we'll go back to the authorities, Todd. I want to ask you that as well. Regarding the authorities uh, involved with MH370, uh, how do you think they've performed so far?
0: Well, I'd have to say this. In the context of MH370, this was an unprecedented event for a a bunch of reasons and one of them being because of where this occurred and the lack of information about the location of the aircraft, you had a search area that was broader than any search area in the history of commercial jet aviation, a search area even greater than what was done, let's say, after the Columbia spacecraft broke up in the upper atmosphere. It spread over a fairly large area of North America, but it was just an area of North America. We're talking initially uh, you'd have to look at The question of how far can this aircraft fly before it runs out of fuel? And we don't know which direction it flew in. So from the last known location, how big of a circle do you draw? That was huge. That was roughly, I don't know, roughly a third of the planet Earth's surface. No country on Earth, not even the United States, no country alone could have mounted uh, a search effort to look for something in an area that big, even when the search area was much smaller. It still took the coordinated actions of a number of countries for logistical reasons. It's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. The closest place where you can have refueling for aircraft and shoreside facilities for ships and other uh, uh, repositioning and and restocking activities was thousands of kilometers away. It was a Herculean effort from several countries to make this happen. And because of the rules for international aviation – the responsible party for conducting the search was the Malaysian government. The Malaysian government, like, didn't have the resources to put all the ships and planes and personnel on, on on, point for this. In fact, no country on earth would have had the resources. So, in answer to your question, eventually the collaboration as a whole was an outstanding collaboration, even though there were some problems at the start and ongoing problems with who is responsible and who will pay for it. The fact is you had a variety of countries coming together on short notice to lend a hand and and lend massive amounts of material and personnel to search for this. Now, as far as who's performed very well, as far as individual entities, the Australian government, for one, taking the lead with the ATSB as the lead investigating authority on this, very highly regarded organization. They've done a number of major accident investigations in the past, and I fully trust the results of anything they do, and they'll be fairly open about the process. On the other end of the scale, the Malaysian government did a variety of things that were just unconscionable. I think of one of them being, there was a press conference that was being given early on in the investigation, and there were a bunch of grieving relatives who were present at the press conference, and they had a bunch of security people basically you know, manhandling these people and dragging them out of the room with all right. the TV cameras taking pictures of it, something that was just would not have been done in in Canada or the U.S. Western Europe. Again, right. those countries I just mentioned, for example, Canada and, and the United States, they have gone through many major accident investigations, many of them under the scrutiny of the world's media. And over time, uh, the major players in aviation—Western Europe, Canada, Japan, Australia—have come to an agreement as to how these sorts of things should be run, how open the investigation will be to the world, what sort of relationship the authorities will have with the grieving families. These are things that have been worked out over time. Malaysia, they basically had two extremely high-profile major events happen within months, and they simply hadn't had that experience before. One would hope two things. One, they don't have another opportunity to practice an investigation, because no country should practice investigations like this because we don't want to have crashes. Two, if they do, I hope they perform better than this last time.
1: (laughs) Right, right. You know, one thing, the last question here, Todd, I want to ask you. I mean, as this thing drags on, I mean, it's getting longer and longer. I know right now the pingers on the FDR and CVRs are probably, they're not pinging anymore. Uh, Do you think that we'll find the cause to this, even if we don't find the CVR or FDR? Even if we do, is it possible we can still I know there have been some cases where there's still data extracted even long after the life of the of the thing. But is this possible that we find a cause and, and without these uh, pieces of information?
0: I think it's possible to get a definitive cause of the uh, loss of the aircraft without the black boxes, but it'll be much more difficult. I see a scenario where the wreckage will be found eventually. I fully believe it will. I just hope it's not going to be a Titanic situation that happens seventy years down the line. But let's say it happens far enough down the line that there's no more data on the black boxes. The chips were corroded. For whatever reason, there's no data from those black boxes. The debris itself on the ocean floor may give a variety of clues as to what may have happened or may not have happened to the aircraft. And also, given that this is the modern era, it's very likely that most, if not all, of the passengers had one or more devices that could have been recording video, audio, or or what have you during the latter part of the flight. And if those could be recovered, if there was nothing unusual in any of them, that would say one thing. If there was a variety of things that were highly unusual on them, that would say something quite different. I'd like to uh, compare this to what happened with the United Passenger a couple of weeks ago who was forcibly dragged off the plane. There was upwards of about 15 different people on the aircraft who whipped out their mobile phones and took videos of it. And I suspect that if there was something catastrophic, but not immediately catastrophic inside the cabin, that certainly many people would have been recording this as it went on. And whether it's a hijacking or onboard fire or whatever, that there may be some information there. So I'm looking forward to seeing something from the black box or something from somewhere else. But in short... If they can find the debris and both intact black boxes and pull data off of it, I think it would be fairly easy to come to a definitive close of the investigation. By that, I'm not saying they'll find a cause, because it's possible that in spite of all the information being available, that they cannot come up with a, a probable cause of the event. What's more than likely going to happen, at least in the next few years, is there will be some point at which... The Malaysian authorities will say, the Australian authorities will say, we're going to finish the investigation with the information we have, with the caveat that should something else come up in the future, this can be reopened. Right. And if they were to finish the investigation in the next few months or couple of years, they'll probably have an inconclusive probable cause or probable causes for this accident, because there's simply not enough data there.
1: Right, right, right. Um, Do you think – I mean how long do you think it will be? I mean it's been three years now. How long do you think they will give it at this rate?
0: That depends on basically either the – in my opinion, either the Australian government or Malaysian government saying, you know what? We're going to bring this to a close and whether you like it or not. The the Malaysian government is free to do so at any time because by international agreement, specifically Annex 13 of the Montreal Convention, which is out of the UN – the country of registration for an international flight like this is responsible for conducting the investigation of an accident. Now, there's another possibility. Should it be, for whatever reason, concluded that this was not an accident, but some sort of deliberate act, there is no international agreement on putting forth any sort of analysis of a deliberate act. Right. I'll take you back in time to the bombing of uh, the Metrojet uh, Airbus over Egypt. Uh, that was essentially a deliberate act, and there's uh, no requirement that Russia or Egypt or anyone else put out a report. Um, in the United States, the four crashes of 9-11 plus other cases in the past where there was a commandeering of the aircraft, I'm thinking like 1980s, where a disgruntled ex-employee shot both pilots in the plane crash. There were no formal reports in the, in the sense of what we usually get from an accident. Contrast that with Great Britain which after the Lockerbie event had a fantastically detailed report that went into great uh, levels of explanation of what happened, what was the sequence of events, how did the airplane come apart in midair after the explosion. There was so much rich information in there that that informed the design of future aircraft based on what was learned from that. Right. So the the U.S. philosophy would have been, well, oh, gee, if one of our aircraft got bombed and we're responsible for the accident investigation, we're not going to put out anything. Britain had a much different approach, and aviation was made better by that approach. Right, definitely.
1: Well, I mean, Todd, it has been a great, uh, great interview with you. I mean, we did cover a lot more than I expected, to be honest. And it's been uh, a, definitely my pleasure. Um, I just wanted to let you know I do write about aviation a lot, so I'll definitely, if there are updates, if it's okay, we'll definitely get in touch with you as well in the future. I'd be we'll- happy to speak with you. Okay, thanks a lot, Todd, and I really appreciate this again.
0: And once again, I was uh, here with uh, uh, Peter Paul of MH370Latest.com out of uh, Toronto, Canada, which has a lot of information about the ongoing investigation of the loss of Malaysian Airlines uh, Flight MH370. And I thank you very much for being with us here tonight at airsafe.com. And for more information about uh, this event, you can also go to MH370 at airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.